Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with Richard Ma, founder of Quantstamp, one of the most respected auditors in the crypto space. We chat about early trends that Richard observed from auditing various projects going into and during DeFi summer, his thoughts on the various economic attacks of smart contracts we saw in 2020, as well as the many ways that Quantstamp is bundling insurance into their suite of services. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Richard, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks, Leslie. I'm happy to be on the show. Quantstamp is known for having rubber stamped many of the DeFi projects in the space. And you guys are one of the preeminent auditors of smart contract security, securing almost 55% of the total value locked that's shown on DeFi Pulse. And according to your website, you know, you've expanded your security offering significantly from securing and auditing smart contracts to now auditing other things like layer one protocols, complex DeFi projects, uh, stable coins, NFTs. And it's just really incredible how much of a stack you've been able to build out. Why does this industry need Quantstamp? There were some stretches of 2020 where almost every week there were multiple flash loan attacks, rug pulls, oracle attacks, and other types of exploits. It's kind of becoming a more complex issue because in 2020, the projects became a lot more complex and people are developing things that integrate with each other or sometimes integrate with you know, up to like 10 different other DeFi products. And so the risks for the users are definitely compounding a bit due to these new innovative products. And, you know, I see our role as trying to help these projects uh, have a really smooth and successful launch. Uh, and then post-launch, you know, helping them with new releases and yeah, just making sure that their users have a great experience. Yeah, we definitely had a crazy DeFi summer. And as you pointed out in our earlier conversation, we're heading into a DeFi winter, but in a very positive way. How's your stress level been these days running an auditing firm that is responsible for so many of the DeFi projects coming out? Everyone wants to launch yesterday because everyone wants to try to time the market. Like they don't know exactly how long this wonderful bull market is going to last. And so you know, there's definitely a lot of demand for audits right now, just because so many people are wanting to launch. But yeah, it's been it's been very exciting just to learn about what people are doing. There's like multiple verticals right now in blockchain where it's really heating up and getting a lot of usage, uh, especially kind of after this latest uh, yield farming craze. So I think that's driven a lot more usage out of these DeFi products than, for example, in 2019. Um, this year, people are even starting to use products that they think are going to give retroactive airdrops in the future. And so that's having a lot of positive effect, I think. What types of projects stand to benefit most from security audits based on your experience? Based on my experience, there's a couple of different types of projects, like the different 
life cycle of the project. I would say there's like three main types. The first type is these DeFi projects that want to launch and it's their first time to have so much user funds in the contracts. And for them, uh, I think the main value proposition there is just wanting to get as many pairs of eyes as possible and as many experts as possible to validate the work, like check that it's implemented properly. I think the main goal there is to kind of like reduce the stress level before the launch. That's what I would call like the first category. Um, the second category is projects that have already launched and they want to add some feature. Uh, I think late last year we audited Compound for you know, one of the features they had, which is being able to distribute comp from the treasury. That was voted in by the community. They had an implementation. And so we were just auditing that implementation on behalf of Compound Governance. I see that trend happening more and more with these kind of iterative audits. And then the third type is, you know, lots of layer ones. So last year, you know, we audited two out of the four Ethereum 2.0 clients. So these are like the layer one clients. We audited Avalanche and also the Cardano mainnet launch and quite a few other mainnet launches like for layer ones. I think that the kind of value proposition there is that for layer one launches, we often find like many, many different bugs, uh, you know, sometimes like 50 up to 100, just because there's there's so much, so much more than like in a smart contract. There's you know, networking code and cryptography, lots of you know, languages that are not used for smart contracts as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I would say for the you know, main types. Could you share some of your favorite stories I mean, working with all these different types of projects, like the challenges that came with auditing perhaps your first layer one project or auditing interesting and emerging fields within crypto, such as NFTs, for example, which I know has been top of mind for Quantstamp. Um, yeah, could you share some stories working with these projects? Well, one we did last year was Cardano for layer one. One thing is that in crypto, there's a lot of like tribalism. And so different people are kind of in different camps. There's like supporters, there's like people that don't really understand the different projects and they just kind of understand specific things. Um, and because we kind of work with everyone, we develop this very agnostic view. So for Cardano, um, that one's written in Haskell and there's very few blockchain projects that are written in Haskell. It's, it's a functional programming language. And so I think the main challenges for us there is that like we, we have functional programming experts at Quantstamp, but it was the first time for us to audit such a huge project. I think, you know, it's been a while, but I think they have something like over half a million lines of code that they developed. And for the Shelly mainnet release, you know, they had wallets and peer-to-peer -peer networking code. So the, the main challenge there is that uh, usually for smart contracts, it's very self-contained because people pay gas fees, right? So people are trying to optimize the smart contracts so that they're not very expensive uh, in terms of gas consumption. But for layer ones, they don't really have that problem. So the code bases can be very large. It's definitely like a learning process for us starting about 2019 to figure out how to audit these very big projects. 
And over time, I think we really got the hang of it. It's, uh, you know, we definitely use a lot more automated tooling to do it. And we look for things that are common gotchas inside that code base. You know, they had a very, very smooth launch. Um, I think, you know, everyone in the Cardano community was really happy about that. For NFTs, we're currently working on um, Audit for Zora, which is a NFT marketplace. But we also did like super rare and we have one for Flow Blockchain, which is the maker of CryptoKitties. NFT audits are generally like a bit simpler because they follow like a specific format and the marketplaces interact with that specific format. The, I think the most challenging one today is the CryptoKitties audit, which they kind of built their own blockchain that can, it's a very kind of gaming focused blockchain. For blockchains, there's, there's a lot more different layers to it. So they have different nodes that perform different functions. And it actually took us about two weeks of tutorials for our auditors to understand how all the moving <laughs> parts work. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that's kind of, I guess, on, on one end of the spectrum. And then obviously with the, there's a lot of yield farming DeFi projects that are coming out. And for those, they're a bit simpler because often we can take a diff against something else that's been released. People like to reuse contracts that have held a lot of value because it's easier to make sure it's safe. Mm-hmm. So for those, I, I think those are generally um, a bit smoother because the developers want to reuse as much as possible. And I think the approach you guys take to smart contract security auditing is very interesting, which is that you provide security that addresses the entire life cycle of a project, right? So it isn't, hey, you come to us for one audit and we don't talk to you again. I presume more of these projects that you audit become relationships. Can you talk about what it means to walk a project through the entire life cycle of security auditing and what that looks like? Yeah, I think it's because like Quantstamp is very much a repeat player. Um, You know, we've been doing this for like more than three years. As a repeat player, like over time, it's kind of dawned on me that you know, I've been able to make some very good friends, you know, with these different projects. And then like, even if they don't have anything to audit, we like to just kind of catch up and see, you know, what they're going to work on next and kind of share our general views about what's happening, like trends in industry and like, you know, cool mechanics that we've seen, or, you know, right now there's like, there's a craze for seniorage coins. So different corners of the industry, like people that work on specific projects, they kind of have kind of a siloed knowledge about blockchain and they might not hear things about like what's happening in other parts of the industry. So um, I think that's kind of one part of the life cycle, which I enjoy quite a bit is uh, this part, which happens in between audits where people are trying to figure out what they're going to build next. And then another part I think that, you know, we've been focusing on a lot is more like post-launch, right? So a lot of people, I think in like 2017 or 2018, they wanted to get the audit for the launch because it's kind of a form of approval. Um, but after the launch, they, they keep releasing a lot of code. And, you know, I saw that a lot over the last three years where they'll kind of like get that um, stamp from Quantstamp or another auditing firm. 
And then um, after they get the audits, they they might ship a lot more stuff, but not have that audited. And uh, what I often saw is that for users, they had this like misconception that the audit was successful. And so anything they like deploy from then on is kind of blessed. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, that kind of audit is just at a step in time. I think what's really happened over the last three years is that there's a lot of these like repeat players, they've realized that, you know, they basically like set aside time and the budget to keep getting audits. And that's definitely helped a lot, I think, in terms of reducing the number of potential incidents that's kind of happened. Yeah. You mentioned that working with these types of projects, you really get a front row seat as to some of the early trends. Can you talk about just a few of these early trends that perhaps our audience should be looking out for going into the rest of this year and what's interesting to you based on some of the conversations that you've had? Um, sure. So last year, I think we, we did one of the first audits for Curve for their um, liquidity mining. And that was, um, I think the Curve liquidity mining event, that was kind of this like landmark inflection point for DeFi summer. Compound laid the first brick for De- DeFi summer with the launch of Comp. And I think Curve really added this inflection point. And that, that was pretty cool um, because we, we had a front row seat to um, see that process. And then, uh, you know, after that, um, we, we kind of did this pro bono audit for Wireern. Um, you know, back when I think, like, they didn't have the funds to be able to get an audit. So we just said, like, okay, we're just going to audit you guys because they were doing the fair launch. Um, they didn't have an audit. Lots of people were throwing millions of dollars into it. At the time, a lot of people knew that Wireern is going to be quite big, but they were still up and coming at the time, like not not like the juggernaut that they are now. And now I'd say, yeah, probably third one is SushiSwap because uh, the project definitely has a lot of like innovative angles and also a lot of ups and downs and drama. Um, so we really like that one because we, we got a front row seat to the um, ups and downs and drama. And we're actually auditing them again um, now for the release of Bento Box. I think this is pretty cool. It's a kind of like a lending product that has isolated uh, liquidations. So yeah, I'm pretty bullish on Sushi. <laughs> there was a conversation that kind of played out on Twitter um, between you know the growth lead of Uniswap and um, Sushi and also uh, Yearn. And it's really this kind of like, I would say there's still a bit of a dichotomy between the different approaches to running communities. Um, so, you know, Sushi, there's there's a kind of like some raw energy happening and they're uh, shipping products in all these different directions. Um, Uniswap is much more intentional. Like they have planned releases. Right now, this is kind of V3. That's the thing to look look out for. And so, uh, you know, that's pretty interesting to have a front row seat there because there's like traditional startup styles and also these like new emerging, I would say like semi-DAO styles where, you know, they're able to like hire developers. Sushi, I think they hired Joseph DeLong as the CTO. And so that's pretty cool. And I would say another another big trend that's going to continue this year is 
Senior Age algorithmic uh, stablecoins. There's still more coming out. I think the next one that's kind of come out is called Faye. And there's, yeah, I've I've seen in our own audits, you know, more and more. Uh, another one is called Reflexor Finance. It's like a reimagination of MakerDAO, but kind of with less governance than MakerDAO, with less need for governance. Yeah, so I would say those are kind of themes that'll play out this year. Do you think Andre's test in prod approach has presented a lot of new attack vectors because of this whole, hey, I'm just going to deploy this project and see how it goes? Like kind of separate from the fair launch aspect, just the whole test in prod approach. Is, is that something that you condone or find a lot of challenges with? I definitely don't condone um, test in prod. Although... Um... Just from a pure market perspective, I understand the need to do it. And I see this urgency from projects that like we audit, which is auditing takes time throughout DeFi summer. And recently, um, I would say like generally the, the high quality auditors are all backed up for you know, anywhere between like one month to three months. And I think from the project's perspective, they, they want to try to hit the uh, window where it's still p- possible to launch their project. And, um, you know, others are, who are building similar things could be competing with them and they want to be the first one that launches, right? Because usually if you're the first one that launches, you get some more mindshare and, um, you know, generally people recognize the first one that launches as the incumbent or the, the market leader for that segment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what is driving it. The other thing that's driving it is, um, I think for the yield farmers and uh, the apes, uh, <laughs> there are actually like quite a few kind of like technically minded apes. And sometimes like when they launch something and they say that it's testing and prod, in fact, like when I look at these contracts, they're complete copies of some something else that that has been audited. So there's definitely like gradations in terms of um, risk, and I definitely understand like from the kind of like project founders' perspective when they want to do that. Um, the thing I would say is like it's actually possible to like hire Quantstamp or other cop auditing companies to do like a short form review. So like for some people, you know, they might have a mentor conception that like all these auditing firms are backed up for two or three months and it's going to be time consuming to do an audit. Um, But I would say still like having someone or like a couple of auditors do a review could still like unsurface some things that would prevent them from losing user funds. And a lot of the kind of mistakes that developers make are still quite simplistic. You know, for the projects that we audit, the mistakes that they make, they never make it into production, right? So we see kind of the raw, unvarnished version, you know, kind of pre-launch version. Everyone benefits from having someone else experience taking a look at it, even if it's like someone, you know, technical and just another developer, like walking through your code, going through it with it on Zoom. Those things help. No, for sure. I mean, let's talk about when things go wrong, right? Some of the meteor things on people's minds these days, which are 
the recent hacks and exploits that we've seen in DeFi. BZX, for example, had two hacks last year, and these exploits included an Oracle attack. Balancer was hacked in June during the DeFi summer, where I guess someone uncovered a flaw in handling Balancer's compatibility with ERC-20 deflationary tokens. And that hack was enabled using flash loans. And the more recent one was Cover, right, which was just December of last year. And that exploit led to basically an infinite amount of covers. So there are all these different types of attack vectors that we've seen. What are your thoughts on these various economic attacks? Um, are you seeing these repeat unnecessarily? Or are these a result of kind of new forms of DeFi projects emerging, which you think will just naturally be resolved as more and more of these types of projects come to light? Yeah, yeah, I would say like actually for DeFi related exploits, they're usually difficult to avoid and hard to find. Um, the reason is like for the developer, they're you know, staring at the code. They like know the code super well. It's actually like hard to find it for the person who knows something super well. The other thing I, what I've seen is really like a lot of these attacks are coming from the integration of different systems throughout, I would say DeFi summer, there were a string of um, yield aggregators that were hit by flash loan attacks. And a lot of them had a similar structure. So, you know, whether that's like Valley DeFi or um, these kind of like Acropolis, these similar types of attacks where they would kind of leverage moving the price on a different product, like for example, on the curve exchange and then arbitraging against that yield aggregators share price and basically like pocketing that difference. The reason why it's hard to find is that there are always these assumptions that developers make when they write programs. I wouldn't say like it's really easy to avoid making those assumptions. One assumption that people made before when they got audits and they decided Oh, okay, we're fine with those issues is that they just assume that the attacker wouldn't have so much money, you know, so much like assets that was available to them. So a lot of the audits like would have that assumption baked in and the, the person who like wrote the program would be like, oh, okay, no, that's fine. Like we can accept those things. Like nobody would have this much money. And then obviously like flash loans change this narrative. But there's a new assumption that I think is like made now, which is people assume that attacks should happen in that single transaction, right? Like people assume now that the only people who can have a lot of money is you borrow it using a flash loan. And like people that are mitigating these flash loans they're thinking, okay, like, well, we're just going to prevent transactions from happening in a single block. Like, we're going to mitigate that. And they'll write some blog post that says, like, this is flash loan proof. But, you know, what I was thinking is, like, well, every flash loan attack, it can also be executed as a sandwich attack. So some attackers who made a lot of money before, well, now they're just walking around with all this money that they stole, right? So if they see another project, they don't necessarily need to borrow the money anymore. They can actually just use the, the money they have and perform the attack over multiple transactions. 
And so I think like these assumptions are pretty difficult, like when you're writing programs to think about. And obviously the other one that we saw was Compound, where they used two oracles. They used Coinbase, which is very liquid exchange for DAI. And they also use Uniswap. And in that case, you know, traders still move the price on Coinbase a lot. And they created like about $100 million worth of liquidations. So that's kind of this other assumption, which is, well, we have this like really liquid centralized exchange. Uh, you know, we have the biggest decentralized exchange and those prices are reliable. So I would say that that's really the source. It's really, I think, something that is not trivial because... When you write programs, you always have to make these assumptions. I love to switch gears and talk about Quantstamp more, specifically the bundling service that you've been able to create around the smart contract security auditing service. And the first is how Quantstamp is able to connect companies within the space looking for insurance with insurance providers. So can you talk about which providers you are working with and how did this partnership structure really come about? Yeah, so Quantstand, like we've been helping a very large lending platform as well as some, you know, major DeFi platforms try to get insurance. Uh, you know, for these large insurance companies, they, they're a little bit behind the times in terms of like technical knowledge. So for the large insurance companies, obviously they would be really happy to write coverage if they knew that uh, you know, the companies were safe to insure against and if they were able to calculate what the premiums are because for these large insurance companies, they operate in very competitive markets like for car insurance or home insurance and for like DeFi insurance or blockchain insurance, these markets are not very competitive and like they can get really good rates. So what we've been doing is like on the one hand, working with the insurance companies and basically like showing them our risk models for the probability of hacks. And over the last you know, year and a half, we've developed like pretty robust risk models in terms of what types of contracts could be potentially possible to be hacked. And these models are quite predictive. So on the one hand, we've been sharing these with the companies. And then on the other hand, like for our audit customers, many of them want to get insurance. And you know, right now there's some like decentralized services available, for example, like Cover or Nexus Mutual. But for the customer, sometimes like their company needs something that is comes from the regular world, like from a normal insurance company. Maybe their board wants to have uh, insurance that's on their paper contract and insured by like a very large organization. Um, so for those, it's mostly that, you know, we've been helping them to organize their information in terms of the different risks in the contract and present them in a way which the insurance companies understand, like they have a different language. And I think this is going to be a pretty big need in the future where what's happening is that blockchain is starting to hit this inflection point where, you know, in the real world, there's like very low interest rates. Many asset managers and like many individuals can really only access like 
0.25% if they put it into their bank account, or maybe it's 0%. And if they were able to put that into DeFi, they can get 10%, sometimes 25% annually. And really that missing piece is, do these platforms have like really robust um, insurance? Um, and I think for the platforms, like they're, a lot of them are very well funded and they'd be happy to pay for it. They just kind of like can't find um, a provider that is willing to give it to them. That's kind of what we've been helping with in over the last, I would say, year or so is trying to bridge the gap and be this like neutral third party that can be dependable for both the projects and also for the um, insurance companies to act as a reference. What are some of the main questions that these you know traditional insurance providers ask you as the trusted risk assessor? Yeah. What do they ask you in like the initial meeting? <laughs> it's actually very surprising. Like it was very surprising when I found out. I didn't realize just how not technical they are. So the questions they ask you to ask are like, what are the backgrounds of the founders of the project? And like, where is their office located? You know, do they have a board? What are their past financials like, for example? Do they have a compliance officer at this project? <laughs> and like, you understand that in DeFi, these questions don't really make sense, right? Because, well, it's a smart contract. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the background of the founder is. It's just code or like, you know, it doesn't really matter what the financials of the project are because a lot of these projects are decentralized. It's not so relevant to the actual risk of a hack. Um, but I think that, that's kind of where we are right now. You know, they will, they will want a presentation. They will want, they will want the founder to show up and like look presentable. Um, they would want to see an impressive uh, resume <laughs> and um <laughs> You know, and, and I think we've been kind of like coaching a little bit there and saying, look, like this is our risk model for the project. It's probably, I would say like the most relevant thing in that more general questions that the insurance companies have is more around physical security procedures, like who controls access to the keys, like the deployment ledger wallet, for example. I think we're still probably a good five years until... They've really caught up. The general awareness of what the real risks are has really caught up. It's in that very early stage where they're kind of still asking the wrong questions still. Yeah. Do you think those questions apply more to perhaps the CFI players that you are working with to connect with these providers? They do. I feel like those would be yeah, yeah more, more relevant. Those are more relevant, right? Because if you think about like the insurance companies, their backgrounds goes to um, dealing with actual people and physical companies and where maybe the background of the founder is important or the, yeah, these kind of like intangibles are important. A lot of those things are kind of encapsulated in the uh, smart contracts. And so I think it's probably still a good five years until it's caught up there. And I wanted to talk about something else as well, which I, I think you briefly alluded to, which is that your clients are now able to provide coverage to their users using their own funds through a proprietary infrastructure called Chainproof. Is that correct? It's still in the experimental stages, but how it works is that 
the smart contracts helps to automate payout of you know any premiums as well as like in the event of a hack basically what would happen is Quantstamp acts as the oracle for the uh, smart contract so we would say okay like there was a hack or there was not and then that would kind of like trigger a payout it's still in the like experimental stage because I, you know, I've seen like the like cover and Nexus Mutual and other um, attempts at decentralized insurance, and the insurance premiums are like a, quite quite a bit different from our own actual models. Often they're kind of underpricing the risk of hacks. Mm. Uh, you know, they might say like, oh, you know, implied risk of a hack is like once in fifty years or once in 75 years, for example, the kind of numbers that we come up with based on the data is much higher. And so, so far, I think we've had a bit more success in terms of getting the big kind of insurers to actually provide the insurance, you know, as opposed to kind of this like self-serve approach where the projects provide the funds. And the reason is really simple. It's because often the projects their um, their TVL is actually much, much higher than the funds they have, mm-hmm. right? So that's the case for, I would say, most of the top projects on DeFi Pulse. They might have billion dollars in TVL, but maybe their treasury is only 20 million or 30 million. So if there was a real hack, it's actually not really practical for them to cover it. A recent example is actually Compound, right? So Compound, they had that, not really a hack, it's more like a liquidation event. Uh, it was still, I think, about $80 million. And they, they had a vote where they said, like, we can, uh, d- you know, move, like, basically distribute some comp, about $80 million of comp to the people who suffered in the Thanksgiving liquidation event. And what happened was in the beginning of the vote, uh, a lot of people voted for it. And then the token holders who control Compound, you know, the big token holders, they voted against it because it would dilute their holdings. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see that as a common theme going forward where, you know, there's some kind of like implicit coverage or like consumer protection that the project sh- like sh- should provide or people assume the project provides. Uh, but then the projects are governed by token governance. And so the token governance, you know, the big whales, they might vote to not do that because paying those tokens out would dilute their shares or cause, you know, selling up the token. And this kind of tension, I think it's going <laughs> to be a theme in 2021 still. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, I mean, as we wrap up here, we'd love to just continue on that line of thought on what's happening in 2021 and ask you what's something that others expect to happen in the crypto industry this year it could be beyond DeFi, that you aren't so optimistic about and you're a bit skeptical on and perhaps talk about something you are very optimistic about that we should see unfolding over the next few months i am very optimistic about optimistic roll-ups I think optimistic rollups are very interesting because if enough projects move together to them, they can kind of preserve some of this like composability and 
basically if like a bunch of projects move over to one optimistic rollup implementation together they can still link all the liquidity together they can still they can like bring some of the liquidity together and that could make it work um the main risk is like you create all these little silos right so before um, there were a lot of different like plasma implementations for example like omise network they made one there were many different plasma implementations and they kind of like weren't really able to take off because there were a lot of different silos there's a lot of problems with like entering and exiting these layer twos so i think that's something i think will happen in terms of something that people are expecting that i don't expect is I don't expect that gas fees will actually go down. <laughs> like, I think like a lot of people think my own view, and I could be wrong about this. I, I think they're probably going to be quite high. <laughs> like one is that, you know, GUI, it's kind of when Ether is higher, one GUI costs more in dollar terms. Um, the other thing is basically for like EIP 1559, which could potentially solve some of these problems kind of the congestion, like that's going to come out likely after like Berlin hard fork. And yeah, I think it's going to be a while. A lot of the congestion on Ethereum is caused by these bots that compete for juicy transactions. And in fact, there's kind of this weird feedback loop when gas fees are high is a lot of people try to submit like lower gas fee transactions. And then those ones get picked off by the bots who can basically sandwich them. So when the gas fees are higher, it creates like more space, some more like user error when people like send transactions and then it, it gets picked off by the bots and that like kind of <laughs> generates more transactions. Many people are optimistic that gas fees will go down when like things like optimism you know, optimistic rollups launch, but I think they'll, they'll stay this way for a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. on, on that note, hopefully someone <laughs> out there who is listening is building a solution to this. Richard, thank you so much for hopping on the show with me. I know it's late where you are um, and sharing more about Quantstamp, also your views on the space as well. I'm sure they're invaluable to our audience. So thank you so much. Thank you. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.